Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf is none other than producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I'm well, Mick, trying to stay cool. It is hot as hell in Los Angeles. Literally, yes. Yes. Did you get triple digits in the valley today? I actually got exactly 100 degrees at my house, uh, which is not normally as hot as the rest of the glamorous San Fernando Valley. That is that is something. Uh, in fact, it's so hot that uh, they've canceled a lot of the picketing this week for the WGA and SAG strikes. I saw that. Yeah. Yes. And plus, uh, next week, we've got the Labor Day weekend as we're recording this. So. Yes. I mean... With the actors out on strike, picketing is much more of a uh, uh, performative ceremonial act these days right. uh, than a practical one because nobody's making anything. So that's right. Uh, so that's right. Yeah. People are available. Yeah. So, what do we have in store for us today? Oh my gosh, Mick. We have so many questions from the mailbag. Uh, our ask <laughs> Mick anything at Gmail dot com email was bursting at the seams we're going to try to get to as many as we can today uh but yeah know, we haven't done an ama in a while because i, we've I know done extra special shows well yeah i mean we had the, the the passing of uh william friedkin which i felt warranted uh you know re-airing your classic interviews with uh, uh, the master i just feel so honored to be able to have had some really frank conversations with him. As I said, the first one being on the Z channel when I was very young and green and easily intimidated by someone so intimidating and someone who enjoyed being so intimidating. Yes. And, well, but then like, the second one, the, the postmortem TV show that we did together, it was really a wonderful two-way conversation with a really wonderful filmmaker who seemed eager to talk about the process and his influences and the like. Yeah, no, they're they're both incredible conversations. They're both uh, amazing pieces of history, uh, and I'm really glad we got to reshare them with all of our podcast listeners uh, to commemorate really truly one of our most important uh, filmmakers of of the last half century. A trailblazer uh, in more than one regard. Absolutely. Uh, all right, but. So to make up for that, let's dig into some of these questions. Let's do it. All right. Uh, one of your favorite question askers, Tiny Viking writes, <laughs> <laughs> Mick and Joe, obviously the film industry is an incredibly cutthroat business. And despite all of that, with everything going on with the strikes, I'm seeing a lot of well-earned camaraderie and love for the writers and actors. There is a sense of loyalty to one another and a great amount of support. My question, as simply as I can put it, what does loyalty really mean in the film industry? Well, it means the same as it means anywhere else. It means a, a commitment to your friendship, to the people you know, to the people you work with, um, a, a sense of honor among cohorts, um, the idea of fulfilling an honest job 
and dealing with each other in a way where you can trust one another. Uh, loyalty is earned. It should be assumed from the beginning, but it can easily be lost uh, and needs to be re-earned. But, you know, the studios have had their their times where people felt loyal to them when they uh, treated creators with respect. Um, but right now, loyalty is more among artists than it is to the employers. Yeah, I mean, look, there's I don't want to say that that's a blanket statement, because obviously there are great executives and there are great producers and there are people that you can work with and trust. But yeah, I think uh, in this fraught time, uh, artists can really count on one another to to be there and, and support each other. Um, you know, and more specifically, you know, you see time and again, directors who work with the same crew members, the same DPs, the same yes. production designers, the same actors. Yes. They they get favorite people to work with, uh, including myself. Yeah. And that sense of loyalty is also a sense of, of a personality shortcut that allows you to just dive in together into a into the pond, even if you haven't seen each other in several years. It can be like nothing ever stopped. And and that comes out of loyalty, friendship, and commitment to your art. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, movie sets, movie developments, uh, television too, as obviously they're such pressure cooker uh, situations. You really want to have people that you can believe are supporting you and supporting your vision and uh, are giving you their best and, and vice versa. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, when you find those people, you tend to uh, hold on to them as best as you can. Uh, cause, cause um, you know, I, I would say every, every project I've ever done, I'm sure you're the same, Nick, there's, you know, several people I identify and I'm like, I'm going to be working with them again. You know? Absolutely. And it makes it difficult if you're working on different series, for example, it's all new cast, all new crew every time out or right. working on locations that you're not allowed to bring key people from one country to another and that sort of thing. But that just enlarges the family. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Armin from Australia writes, good day, Mick. <laughs> good day, Armin. Through numerous podcasts, there has been much conversation this year about uh, Psycho 2 and Hocus Pocus celebrating their 40th and 30, 30th anniversaries, respectively. Yes. Therefore, I was wondering if you would consider devoting a future episode to mark the 75th anniversary of one of your all-time favorite movies, <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I knew where that was going. Uh, well, if there were any, if there were anybody alive who worked on the film, it would be <laughs> nice. I think that's going to make for a problem. Anybody who was of age to be employed in 1947 when the movie was made uh, would be nice to have around. Now, well, I did. I think it's a great idea, by the way. It's one of my favorite movies too, and I think we should figure something out. Maybe uh, there's a way, but and maybe it's to get a couple of the uh, of our uh, genre-loving comedian friends on to talk about it. Ooh, uh, like so that. that might be something I'm just talking off the top of my head. But yeah. I did get the opportunity to choose that film and host its screening at the cinema at the Cinetech. Um, the American Cinematheque, sorry, uh, where we showed, they asked me to pick a black and white movie to show to an audience. Yep. I chose that, 
We had a sellout crowd that just ate it up every minute of it. And that movie still works gangbusters. I, I love the film. And there may be a way for us to show, show it a little love when it turns 75. I think it's a great idea, and I look forward Thank to you, Armin. figuring out uh, what it is. Yeah, thanks for doing our job for us, Armin. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Producer Armin. <laughs> Producer Armin. Uh, our next question from Dave. He's also got a, a, a pitch for us. Uh, Dave writes, hello, Mick and Joe. I'm a big fan of the Postmortem podcast, and I often listen to it while I'm at work. Uh, I'm a comic book artist and draw primarily horror comics, my latest being Terror War for Image Comics. Cool. Uh, have you guys ever considered writing graphic novels and has the idea of a nightmare cinema anthology comic ever come up? You know, that was one of the things we did talk about during the formative days of nightmare cinema. Um, I have never uh, really looked into writing graphic novels. You know, our, our good friend, Steve Niles is one of the top horror writers in the graphic novels and comic book field. Uh, I, I must admit to not being a big reader of comics and graphic novels, despite the fact that my father was a very talented artist um, who never got the opportunity to make his living doing his art. But I have photo stats of work that he did that, that was as good as any of the EC artists. I mean, beautiful, beautiful work. And he never got the opportunity to do that. I certainly don't uh, dismiss the idea of writing graphic novels or having something to do with nightmare cinema, but it's not been at the top of my list. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine what the uh, right situation, who we'd have to go to figure that out and untangle a nightmare cinema yeah. comic would be, but it's, it's a fun There's idea. So many producers. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's a little bit messy, which is I think an, another reason why a sequel is, is becoming increasingly less likely as time goes by, but uh but yeah, I mean, it would be it would be fun. I, I've 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 had a couple of the you know not not Marvel and DC, but kind of the second tier comic labels have talked to them in the past about you know potentially either adapting one of their graphic novels and or taking some of our old scripts and pitches and and retrofitting them into comics. But it's never quite worked out uh the the formats aren't one-to-one -one and and some of the creative changes i would have had to make either just didn't feel right or just wouldn't work uh, and it's as much work to write a comic book as it is to write a screenplay sure. and i'm much more comfortable writing a screenplay now i did write a screenplay that has a graphic novel at its heart yes that um called graphic with an exclamation mark afterwards um that uh, I have talked to a couple people about turning it into a graphic novel before making the movie, but it's a multimedia kind of storytelling that I don't think anybody's ever seen before and something I really want to get out there um, that I think could be something really, really special. But it does indeed, the main character is a brilliant graphic artist who discovers the work that his father had done before he ever knew about it after his father has passed. Sure seems like you're drawing from personal inspiration, Nick. It's uh, true. <laughs> it's true. I, I knew my father was a really terrific artist, but uh, it was later on where uh, I discovered how good he was and the material that he tried to turn into um, comic books and comic strips. 
Yeah, no, I've read graphic and it's a terrific script. And I really, I really hope you can do it because I think it would be actually a very cool way to tell that story. Yeah, um, thanks. So if any uh, you know, big comic book labels are listening, give us yeah, a dark horse, you out there. <laughs> yeah, give us a give us a jingle. Uh yeah. so all right. Josh writes, Hi Joe, hi Mick. In your opinion, where does David Lynch stand in the pantheon of horror? Do you consider any of his work to be truly horror or simply pieces with elements of horror? Well, I, you know, breaking down into elements of horror doesn't make much sense to me. It, it, if something expresses horror, it is horror. It's horrific. You know, what could be more horrific than the mutant baby in in Eraserhead? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, Mulholland Drive is a horror story that is not supernatural. Um you know, he's he's done so much very outre stuff. I mean, the Elephant Man, if it weren't such a sweetly beautiful and heartbreaking drama, could easily be a Hammer film. You know, uh, yeah. I think he's drenched. His work is drenched in horror, and yeah. and I don't think he would disagree. Yeah, no, I I, I think uh, when I think of David Lynch, I absolutely think of horror. I think of you know, I, it weirdly, like, you know, I feel like David Cronenberg's work kind of runs along the same lines of like, it's 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 horror, uh, maybe sometimes on the edge of horror, but but right. horror, you know. Yeah, there's a little more insanity in Lynch. Um, uh, oh yes, oh dementia. no, I mean, yeah. night ni- nightmare logic, I think, is uh, uh, a great way to describe it. Exactly. Um, well, here in Studio City, there was a cafe called Dupar's. And more than once I went in there and David Lynch was having cherry pie while having his lunch with Richard Matheson. So I don't know what that could have led to that never happened. But that was thrilling. Two two great minds that know the outre. And uh, it would have been amazing to see what they came up with together. To be to have been a fly on that wall, and I was a fly on that cherry pie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, to a guy wants to know, what's the best way to score crew positions like camera operators, set designers, carpenters, etc.? Well, it's just as hard as any other position. You have to prove yourself. Yep. One of the best ways might be to go to the film schools or universities where there are film studies courses mm-hmm. and make yourself available. Look at the at the poster boards with where people are looking for cameraman, editor, um, sound boom operator, things like that. Uh, or go to the film schools as a student yourself or just, just uh, go and haunt those Craigslist ads where people are looking for crew um, and make yourself available. And, but there's gotta be a reason for somebody to want to hire you. So you have to either have some ability or have the humility to learn from the bottom and, and just work, do the, whatever work it takes to be able to fulfill what they're looking for and then create a relationship with a director or a producer or a cameraman who will remember you and want you the next time they get a paying job. Yeah. I think anytime uh, you're not maybe starting from film school per se and learning a very specific trade uh, that you can try to jump into the field with, um, you know, I think that you, the best way to do it is go try to volunteer to be a production assistant 
and network with the departments that you want to try to move into, you yeah. know? Because uh, that's honestly, it's if you can make a good impression as a PA and, and be helpful and bring people water and be pleasant and say please and thank you, you'd be surprised how far that goes on a movie yeah. set. And uh, if you can get a job done before you're asked to do it and have that kind of personality where you are absolutely crucial to the production team, people notice that and people take note of it and, and they keep it uh, in their hearts and their contact books. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, if you do forge a relationship like that through the fire uh, you know, ask them to, go for coffee and maybe they can introduce you to someone in the department you want to yeah. be in. And, you know, then suddenly maybe if it's camera, you're, you're, you know, doing second AC work where you're, you know, prepping the, uh, the clapboard and the slate, you know? Uh, so. Yeah. It's not a glamorous job being a PA, but it's absolutely essential and it's not a, a well-paying job either, but the whole point is film school without paying a hundred thousand dollars a year to UCLA. So. Right. And, and it's just to help kind of like get your feet wet and help direct you to where you want to go. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that would be, that would be where I think we would start. Uh, yep. So, all right. Uh, another person who's looking for a start, uh, Scott writes, I'm curious if you'd recommend using screenwriting software for a first time writer. If so, which ones are the best and why? Well, the standard is final draft. Yes. Um, and even the ones that aren't final draft are compatible with final draft because that's what all the studios use. That's what almost all the screenwriters use, professional screenwriters use. I know there are um, kind of generic versions of final draft that will allow you to output in final draft, even though you don't write them. I don't know what those are, Joe. I know you do. But yeah. the, the industry standard is final draft and it would behoove you to learn how to use that. Yes. Uh, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty easy program to get to know. It's not super expensive. Um, you know, I know there's some writers who find it cumbersome and they prefer this program or that program, but honestly, I, I think like maybe it's just cause it's what I started with, but you know, when I, 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 I know like Alejandro Bruguez loves uh, John August's program, Highland, the screenwriting program. Right, Highland. right. I, when he showed it to me and, and when I tried it, I felt like I was writing in code. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it just like it just didn't it just didn't wasn't intuitive for me because I think I was so used to final draft. Um, well, when I started, it was on a typewriter. And yeah. so there was no <laughs> formatting other than sure. the, the whapping the bar and tapping and and white, oh, white out and all of that stuff. But then along oh, came Scriptware, yeah. which was the first standardized software, which you put into your uh, three and a quarter inch floppy drive um, <laughs> to be able to work with that. So you'd have Scriptware in one drive and what you're working on on another drive, and you'd have to do it in pieces of like 20 pages. Oh my I God. remember when I was writing Batteries Not Included, I was 90 pages in and I had not broken it up into multiple sections and my K pro two could not remember it. No, did you so lose? I, I lost a few pages, but I thought I was going to lose 90 pages. And I took it to a friend who was working in a computer store and he managed after a couple hours of, of work 
managed to save it. But this was one of my first studio movies as oh a writer. Oh, my God. And um, I was terrified, literally 90 pages into the script. Nine, yeah, no, I, I think I would have had heart conniptions if I was about to lose 90 pages of work, I, I especially yeah. uh, for a movie for Steven Spielberg. Holy yes, exactly. Shit. The first time he's hired <laughs> you to do a feature-length screenplay. And you're like, oh, I got a lot to prove here, Mr. Spielberg. Oh, jeez, oh, yeah. And so, uh, so when people ask to read why they can't read Old Drafts and Hocus Pocus, it's because they were broken up into 20-page chunks on floppy drives. That <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not that I don't have printouts of those. Sure, sure. They exist, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I'm sure they're not, they're not getting the a uh, they're not getting an easily digestible PDF. Let's put it that way. No. Um, right. Okay. Slithery D writes, Mick and Joe love the pod. Thank you. What are your thoughts on aspiring filmmakers spending their money on costly film festival submission fees? And do you believe there are dubious politics at play in that area? Oh, I'm sure there are in some places, but. It depends on how badly you want to be in these film festivals. And some of these festivals are really worth it. Scream Fest is really important. Uh, short films have gone on to become features that have played at Scream Fest. Sure. Um, Fantasia is important. Sitches is important. Um, there are a ton of really good film festivals. Uh, Austin is very screenplay specific. The Austin Film Festival is is great and not so much about short films and the like but you know sundance all all of these film festivals you've heard of you've heard of them for a reason because they are a great launching ground for new talent whether it's independent or mainstream so it depends on what you consider too expensive and whether it's worth the expense to you if you have the possibility of showing your movie to 200 people and among them are people in the industry then your movie has to stand on its own and it's either going to be well received ignored or badly received so however much it costs to put that in front of those eyeballs is going to be a a, a great opportunity for you to see how well you connect with your audience yeah and i think look everyone knows the film festivals that matter uh <laughs> yeah you know like the, like where where the industry people are going to be it's going to be sundance and Cannes and toronto and venice and you know um and then obviously for horror it's fantasia it's scream fest it's you know there, there's the you know what they are the overlook heard, is another important one the yeah. overlook yeah uh but you know if you're gonna be applying to something like I don't know. I, this name always sticks out in my head because Brandon Hill got into it one time. The the Bare Bones Film Festival. <laughs> you know, you might be going to the middle of nowhere where like they got a sheet hanging on a wall. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, more often that's more common than you think, and it's a lot more. You common know, uh, it's the studio executives are not on the prowl at the Bare Bones Film Festival. Uh, they they are not, uh, and Brand, Brandon, our Nightmare Cinema producer, can confirm that. Uh, the last time I brought it up on the pod, I think he got a, a laugh out of that. So hopefully he gets a laugh out of it again. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, you know, I, I it's like you know if you but if you really want your movie to be seen and you're not getting you know into the bigger festivals, uh, which there are a lot of politics at play in some of the really big ones. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very dependent on do you have stars in it. 
uh you know is do you have an agent at caa who's lobbying for you to get into sundance i mean there there is that stuff i mean but yeah i mean there's definitely some shorts that get into those big festivals on merit it's just really fucking hard yeah Um, it's it's really difficult but you have to have something that stands apart from everything else Yep. Um, as in every other job you know you if you're writing screenplays and you're one of the 30 being taken home that weekend by an agent there's got to be a reason for it to go in the save pile rather than the recycle pile yeah absolutely but you know if you have a short that's sticky enough and you think it could go viral online i mean that's always a a really good alternative to you know uh, a friend of mine had a short um it's a really good little horror short called ignore it uh you know i i tried sending it around to some agents and manager types in in 2020 you know before it had played anywhere and uh you know they were kind of you know short film in the middle of pandemic eh, whatever you know, and then earlier this year, he put it online, it blew up, it got mega exposure on YouTube. And now they're calling him. And now he's about to sign with a big manager and a big agent, you know, so like, I like those stories. That's yeah. a good story. Uh, it, it's just funny that, you know, when I called uh, with the same <laughs> thing, you know, but it just shows you how much like momentum, like heat really changes their opinion. You know, um, absolutely. So, uh, but, but yeah, I, I don't, don't turn your nose up at the internet because if you have something that could be sticky, uh, it, it can be just as viable, if not more so than playing at some film festivals. And the small festivals are always worthwhile to see how it's going to go over with an audience. Yeah. It's worth, uh, it's worth sampling an audience depending on where you live. You know, if, if you live in Kansas city, uh, it may not be worth it to go to a film festival in Pensacola. Right. But, sure. but uh, you know, it depends on what you want from that. If you want to become a superstar from it, or if you want to s- gauge an audience's reaction to your work. Yes, I completely agree. All right. Last question, Mick. Uh, and it's a long one. So settle in. Uh, okay. Ash writes, hello, Mick and Joe. As Hi, a- Ash. As I was when I was a kid watching Mick Garris movies, whenever I saw his name as a writer or director, I always thought, man, this Mick Garris must be a really scary guy. <laughs> so it's such a joy to know from listening to this podcast and seeing your appearances on documentaries that I was so wrong. Uh, my question with all the recent talk about AI and the ever-improving de-aging technology as seen on the latest Indiana Jones and the cameos in the Flash movie, I was wondering what your thoughts were on potentially digitally recreating the likenesses of a deceased actor. For example, what if there was a new Psycho film starring Anthony Perkins or the return of Sean Connery as James Bond? Well, the possibility is there. I mean, they already did Peter Cushing in Star Wars. Right. Um, and you know it it did not cross the uncanny valley he still felt it was a little too new the technology yeah, to yeah. be completely convincing and it just felt weird obviously as with all other cinema technology it will become perfected yes um hopefully the estates of all of these deceased performers will have ownership of those characterizations of of the deceased actors so 
I can see that happening. Well, in fact, Bob Zemeckis did it before it was a CG trick with um, an episode of Tales from the Crypt that used Humphrey Bogart. Right, and right. So he used that. I mean, Zemeckis is one of our great cinema magicians, and he's always been at the forefront of a bleeding edge technology when it comes to special effects and the like. But it's going to happen. And if the families share from it and approve it, then I have no problem with that. I think you're going to be hard pressed to make it completely believable for a while because so much of performance is nuance. But everything you feed in, for example, an Anthony Perkins performance, if you feed in every Anthony Perkins movie into your AI computer uh, and and render it well, it will probably do a a passable version from it, maybe eventually even an excellent and convincing version. So I'm excited by the possibilities as long at, as it is done with his progeny in mind. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's entirely up to the families, you know, um, they're going to be the ones who are going to determine, you know, and, and know the, the, the person best as to, what they would or wouldn't be willing to do with their, the legacy of their likeness, you know? Yeah. And no doubt there are greedy members of families of uh, deceased performers who would jump in regardless if it had a good paycheck, but I'm going to just believe like Anne Frank, that most people have good hearts. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think we want the best from uh, the world and we want the best from our movies and sure. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hope that that's why people make these decisions moving forward. But, uh, yeah, we're definitely on a exciting cusp of, um, you know, seeing what happens. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it'll be for the, the good or, or the evil, but, uh, you know, we'll definitely, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what ghosts come back to the silver screen. Well, let us use the force for good. Yes. Yes. On that note, Mick, uh, if people want to uh, use the force of this podcast to send us more questions, uh, they can send them to askmickanything at gmail.com or they can find us on the social media platforms at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram and at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively. Well, thank you. And anybody uh, who it would be really helpful for us if you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, it really helps us a lot. and We really appreciate it. So thank you, Joe. And thank you, everybody out there and look forward to next time. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.